thank you. I'm so excited to be on your show. I'm really excited to have you. You look great. I love that jacket. Thanks. I made the holes myself. <laughs> Extra comfort, right? That's right. That's right. And years. It's like character now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what state are you in right now? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. How's it up there? Cold? It was a little chilly today, but yeah, it's it's gorgeous up here. It's the Pocono Mountains, and that's why I wanted to stay here, because I grew up here, and I'm broadcasting live from my family's farm that we got like 250 years ago, so. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, it runs in the family. You got to keep it going, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. So would you mind telling me a little bit about your childhood? Of course. I had a great childhood. Although I can complain, I did grow up in a farm. So <laughs> it was like bailing hay and taking care of animals. I didn't see the ocean until I was like 15 years old because of that. But it was so funny, like <laughs> just looking back, I would be so excited to see like a flower and I'd be walking towards this flower and all of a sudden I get hit in the head with the electric fence because that's there for the horses. And I'm like, Zzz. oh no, those are probably very different from dog fences. Oh gosh, it's a little bit, yeah, it's a lot more. And it's like when you get it right in the forehead, because that was like my height at the time. Oh my God. Um, and it's like, damn it, I can't even enjoy a flower. And I'm like seven years old, you know? So. Heavy voltage. <laughs> yeah, so I guess that could explain a lot about me and my past. But yeah, my parents were wonderful. They're still together. They're the exact opposite of my life. <laughs> so. I wanted to go for the good, happy, wholesome life, but it just didn't work out for me that way. So I'm just kind of rolling with it. <laughs> it doesn't always work out that way. Growing up, okay, you had a great childhood. And then I know you had some experiences with opioids. When did you first try opioids? I was given them when I was about 15 or 16 years old because I have ovarian cysts really, really bad. I also, I was a dancer like ballet, tap, jazz, lyrical, all that stuff. I danced with the Anglo-American Ballet Academy oh, and wow. Steps on Broadway. And so we did a lot of really awesome things. And, and that also meant getting a lower disc bulge because you're always pushing yourself to the max. So I had a couple of these ailments and back then it wasn't a thing. I'll be clean next month. It'll be 17 years. So I was on them for probably about five or six years in total, and it ramped up really, honestly, on September 11th because I had just moved out of my parents' home for the first time. I lived in a bubble up here with all of my farm life and not really going anywhere because we didn't have the money to. But my father always taught me that nobody was going to come and knock on our door here in the Poconos in this rural part of the of the area. So I had to go out and get stuff. So that meant going away to college. But two weeks into my freshman year was September 11th in 2001. And I was conveniently located six miles from Three Mile Island and could see it where my college was located. See like the smokestacks and all of that. So I got my first potassium iodide pill, which is in my scrapbook now. <laughs> what is that? Essentially, it would protect your thyroid, I guess, in the event that somebody did take a plane and crash into Three Mile Island, which was one of the, I guess, proposed hits with the planes that didn't make it. Yeah. But it's a nuclear power plant that they just started to shut down recently. But up until that point, if something happened to that, like 150 mile radius, it'd just be like blown to smithereens. So that not only solidified my addiction because it was 
keeping me from being afraid. I mean, I couldn't leave because we didn't have a car, me or my roommate. Parents couldn't come and get me because they closed all of the interstates down because it was going into the nuclear power plant that was supposed to be hit. And so it was the first time on my own. And now it's like a huge national thing happened. And so that really ramped up my pill taking so that I couldn't be afraid. It also solidified my future in news. I really knew that I wanted to get into news and broadcasting and journalism. And I was going to school for that. So it was like, okay, now my adrenaline's just going. The opioids would give me energy and made me not afraid. I genuinely am a shy person, but how I am right now is essentially how it was when I was on opioids, but I had to kind of teach myself how to become this person over the last 20 years almost. What kind of coping mechanisms did you discover to feel the way you do now, the way that opioids made you feel? Because you seem to have so much energy. You seem very extroverted to me. I know, but it's weird. I had to train myself to be like that. And like I said, it'll be 17 years the end of next month. So it's like every day I just tried to take one step in front of the other and just trying to be at least 1% better than I was the day before. And also, ultimately, I really liked the person that I had become. I knew that taking opioids was not going to be my future at all because I couldn't sustain it. I didn't want to anymore. Something the size of a pencil top eraser was running my life. Oh, my God. Like everything, everything just kind of collapsed. Everything I had worked for. I was at Oxford University, the number one school in the world. And I was taking like 70 to 100 Vicodin a day just to function and and do all that And the thing that really threw me over the edge was at the end of it when I couldn't get any more pills because I didn't have insurance over in the UK. And by the time my parents even could get me some from the doctors who I knew would give them to me, by the time they flew over and I got them and stuff, I would have been going home because it was towards the end of when I had my finals and and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was the best, worst thing that ever happened to me. But if I had to do it again, I would do it the exact same way. Because it made you who you are today, despite all of the, what you might call failures, but they turned out to be a win for you because you've accomplished so much. I see that you've done stuff with the Olympics and you were over in South Korea and worked with the Paralympics. I didn't go to South Korea for the Paralympics, but I did work on their uh, Toyota Paralympic Games commercials, which was exciting because Toyota was the main sponsors. We've also done stuff for them for the Super Bowl, which was awesome in and of itself for like two or three years in a row. So in the Olympics was an amazing, amazing thing. I actually did go back to Oxford for the first time in 2012 during the Olympics. And it was really important for me to do that because when I had left Oxford, I was at my lowest point. And then when I came back, I was working the Olympics. I always go back and sit because now I've worked with Oxford on some projects, documentary type stuff that we have in the works. And Every time I go back there, it's just amazing. And then I was actually honored like at a dinner parliament uh, two marches ago and achieving Oxford alumni. I forget what the exact title is. It's like, holy crap. Like I left here at my worst moment thinking that I was going to be a failure forever because back then opioids wasn't a thing yet. People didn't know what to do with me. Yeah. Essentially, like I wasn't underage drinking and I wasn't doing heroin. I was abusing my own prescription that I had all even 70 to 100 a day back then. Everybody was like, oh, she's in the number one school in the world and she's being smart. And oh, yeah, just give her whatever she needs. The dentist, the OBGYN, the doctor. I've never purchased pills. I never had to. 
why wouldn't I do that? Of course, cocaine made its way into the mix and that was amazing as well. But, you know, that also had to end because it doesn't sustain itself very well. No, it does not. <laughs> so <laughs> I saw something really beautiful. It totally made me cry on your IMDb page, that video there. Oh, the opioid video? Yes. I mean, that's kind of why I'm looking like this because I was like, oh my gosh, it was so beautiful. But also I'm feeling for all the people that have lost somebody to opioid addiction and all the people that are in active addiction now. And I was like, wow, this really hit home because you've had loss in your life. And a lot of people have had loss in their life with opioid addiction. We all know somebody probably that's on opiates, whether you know it or not. It's really sad. There's just people dying left and right. It's really an epidemic. And we have the pandemic going on at the same time. Yeah, it's terrible. It really is. <clears throat> Nine years ago, my husband passed away from a heroin overdose, an accidental one. He wasn't a heroin addict. But when he got home from the Navy, he was suffering with PTSD, depression, and was turning to different drugs for a while. And then eventually it was heroin. And on Veterans Day... We got married on 7707. He died on 111111. So I stayed 121212. I stayed home. Yeah. <laughs> but it was Veterans Day and he passed away. And he was 28, I was 28, and our kids were six and four. And ultimately, I then found out who was the person who shot him up with the heroin that killed him. Like I said, he didn't do it. So he didn't know how to do it. And I knew the person and I reached out to him. And he was actually in the halfway house. He was shooting about 50 plus bags a day at that time. Wow. And he had two sons and a wife. They weren't a part of his life at that point in time because of all of the bad stuff he was getting involved in. And then I told him, I'm like, I will forgive you and I'll help you if you could become the father to your two sons and the husband to your wife that my husband can no longer be. Right. Uh, and I remember like he had tears in his eyes and he's like, you're the one person who's supposed to hate me and you're the only person willing to help me. And I'm like, yeah, because that's how it was with me. Nobody yeah. wanted to help me. Like I was up here and then it was just woof, all gone in an instant. And the thing is, is I was trying to ask for help and I lost it all. So I completely understand where he was coming from, especially shooting like 50 plus bags a day. What is a bag? What is the amount of that? So usually in a heroin bag, you get like three shots in your arm per bag, usually. I mean, it's only about five bucks, which one pill is like 18 to $20 a piece on the street. So that's why people are turning to heroin when they're trying to get off opioids because they can't get them anymore because everyone's yeah. been abusing them. And now it's like they're pulling them from people like my father, for instance, he got all of his pulled. And he's got degenerative disc disease, five bad discs in his back. He's supposed to not even be walking. And they pulled all of that stuff from him. And it's like, I feel terrible about it now, especially on days that he is hurting and everything. Because I'm like, it's people like me that screwed it up for people like you. And I do feel really bad about that. But this is just the way it is. And it is an epidemic. It's a pandemic, to be honest. Just it like, really is. If you do check out that video that she's referencing on my IMDb with the opioids, it tells you a lot of statistics and there's like more people that die in a year from opioids than in like the whole Vietnam War and stuff like that. Like the statistics are shocking. They're shocking. But that's why I feel like I need to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. Because nobody sees that you can do great things and go on because everyone's there pointing their fingers at you and telling you you're a failure. And it's like, that's not it at all. Right. The same people I met at rock bottom. It's funny because when I get to the top, 
those people have also at least dipped their toe in rock bottom, if not have been there. So it's like funny because everybody in the middle that is pointing their fingers telling you you're a failure. Yeah, you're not at rock bottom, but I don't see you at the top either. You know what I mean? And people at the top are the ones that aren't afraid to fail and lose and risk it all and just get up and do it again. That's what we do. So people now just call me dangerous. (laughs) But ultimately, at the end of the day, the only thing that I really wanted to prove, and I think that I did, it's just that the only thing more powerful than drugs and depression and all of that stuff is love and forgiveness. And not only did I prove it, but it sustained itself because now he's the only one left alive out of all of these guys that they hung out together with. He was the worst of them all. And now he's the only one alive and he's been clean now for nine years. He got his whole family back. He has his own company. He's doing wonderful. And up until about two or three weeks ago, when I saw him, it, it had been like two years since I've seen him. So it's not like I'm even holding his hand and pushing it like, He is doing it all on his own, and I'm just super proud of him. I really am. Was he a veteran as well, like your husband? No, not at all. I think he barely passed high school. (laughs) How did you all meet? Well, I knew who he was in high school because we all went to school together, but he was a couple of grades below us, and he was always a troublemaker. And I was like, you know, the, the captain of the cheerleading squad and head of FBLA and head of student council. So We didn't really hang out, but I knew who he was. The more I got to know about him as we went along, I mean, his father was like in the Hells Angels and he was really tossed around a lot. So it's like, this is the first time somebody has actually loved and cared and believed Mm. in him enough because for like eight or nine months when he was in the halfway house, you know, I would pick him up and I would take him to work and stuff. So I never gave him money. I gave him like a Bible and I would on his phone so he could talk to his kids and he would call me when he was having a hard time and I'd try to help him out. I'd pick him up when it was really cold outside, freezing snow and all that in the wintertime so he didn't have to walk home from work because I was just thrilled that he was keeping a job and he was doing everything he said he would do. And I think he just needed somebody to believe in him. And, and yeah, you know, I'm super proud of him. Forgiveness isn't for the other person. It's for right. you. you know? So But at least I could have went to bed that night knowing that I tried. And that's all that I cared about is like, I'm going to at least try. And there's no better person to try than the person who essentially killed my husband. I have chills all up and down my body. Like that is so heartwarming to hear that you still had love in your heart and you were able to forgive somebody that, yeah, essentially killed your husband and you were able to forgive him. And now he's still alive and he's able to connect with his family but I can also understand like how much you probably wanted to hate this person and to find that love in your heart and not do something crazy like a lot of people probably would these days is just a really beautiful and heartwarming thing. God bless you for that. That has got to be the most difficult thing to ever have to experience. It was tough, but at the end of the day, sending him back to prison, which is what everybody wanted me to do, that was his second home. That wasn't going to do anything. We know what his story was at that point. And it's like, no, and everybody was mad at me and I didn't give a crap. I was just like, whatever. And now they're all friends with them. So who gets the last laugh now? He is a cool person. (laughs) A big thank you for connecting Stacey and I. Steven Joyner, you can go to s-jnetwork.com. A big shout out to our broadcasting network, 365 Broadcasting, and our sponsor, Artie Hoffman. Visit artiehoffman.com. So Stacy, I mean, it's been 10 years now, right? Since you've lost your husband. Nine at the end of this year. 
Holy moly. I can't believe how much time has gone by, to be honest. Yeah, you're getting a lot of love in the comments. Everybody's just really proud of you. Thank you, guys. When that happened, when your husband overdosed, where were you at the time? I was home over at a friend's house. It's a mutual friend of ours, and she had gone down to pick up her kids and meet her kids like two or three hours away. The whole day, he was just over at their house and hanging out with other people, and it just kind of happened. How did you find out? Did somebody call and let you know, or was it the cops? Or Well, no. My friend called because she's the one, when she came home, she found him on the couch, and everybody else had gone away. That is just the typical scenario, I guess. But um, essentially, the autopsy revealed that he did have a heart problem as well, which didn't find out about. And his heart literally exploded in his chest. So the heroin didn't help, but his arteries were super corroded anyways. So I have to think of it as a blessing because they said he probably would have had a massive heart attack the next six months or so. And if I had to choose, I would have never wanted to choose to put our house up for another mortgage or anything just to pay for a new heart bills and everything like that. I'm just thankful I didn't have to make that decision. Yeah. It was just like, this is life and it's serving it to you and you can choose to handle it any way you want. Life's about perception and reaction and how you perceive something is how you react to it. So if you look at things differently, you're going to react a lot differently. Yeah. So a lot of people go to Narcotics Anonymous and 12-step programs like that. Some people find that a rehab works. Where did you find your way? Did you use a 12-step program? How did you get clean? While all this is going on, my father was the only person willing to help me. He tried very hard to keep me out of rehab because he didn't want that on my record because I had worked so hard to get all the schooling, these opportunities, and he didn't want something to taint it. So every single day I went to the doctors and I got a drug test. And if I failed one time, I was getting chipped off to rehab. But my father worked with me. I I have to give him all the credit in the world because he changed my mind as in he started making me think positively. He encouraged me more into ancestry and genealogy because he's like, do you even know who you are? And I'm like, no. And he's like, well, go find out. Ancestry is more like dates and numbers and genealogy is the stories. So he would tell me stories about my great grandparents overcoming all of these unbelievable obstacles, cancer and doctors giving them a week to live. And they're like, nope, I have a job to do. I have to raise my kids. And then they go on to live 25 years after that and outlive the doctor. My father changed my mind with the perception and then how you can react to things. And he just started really planting seeds, changing the way that I see things. So He said, problem is always going to be a problem if you look at it like a problem. So you got to stop looking at things like a problem and start looking at it a little bit differently. And then things will change. He was right. I mean, it's sad. But at the same time, when something bad always happens, I instantly think of what good can come from it. And people don't like it. And it's not like I'm throwing it on them. But that's what I have to do kind of to cope is believe that something better is going to happen. And it always usually does. And all of these things that were supposed to kind of set me back were the things that launched me forward once I just embraced them. And that's why I'm an open book. I'll tell you about all the worst things that I did because everybody knows the best stuff. My bio is like incredible. And I'm sorry, high five me for that. (laughs) Get you in the door. (laughs) But then once I get in the door, I get up and I started talking about how I'm most proud of my failures and my drug addiction. And everybody is like, 
their butt hole clenches up and you can see it in their eyes like, oh no, don't worry. There's a good ending to this story, but let me talk, you know? And it's like, I end up reaching more people talking about all that stuff. But that's the thing is I wouldn't have been in a lot of these places or talking to some of these people if it wasn't for all of the other amazing things I've done. And I just like to use it as a platform to kind of be like, yeah, you can be on top, but it's the broken people and the Bible, the New Testament, not Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John necessarily, but everything from in between that to Revelations is like a, a way of looking at life. And in Second Corinthians, it says that God chooses people to suffer so they in turn can help others who suffer. And I really, yeah. truly believe that. And it's like, I have to look at this as a gift and do something with it, which is why I'm here. It's not like it's been six months or a year, which I'm super happy for anybody who does that. It's a new beginning. My husband went to rehab and I tried all of the same ways that I thought would work for me. But again, they have to want it too. I wish I could have saved it, but there's both sides of the coin to see. So it's like I could help myself, but I had to learn that other people have to want to help themselves too. And it doesn't matter how much you say sometimes or how much you do. It's really all about that person. And so it's tough and and it's a crazy world. But again, I wouldn't change it for anything. Like I'm the most proud of my failures because it's it's brought me here. I've met a lot of amazing people that have turned their lives around completely. And then yes, sadly, Mm -hmm. a lot of people can't, it might be because of an underlying mental health issue that's not been addressed. Mm -hmm. It might be because they just really have given up which you know, that's depression, they don't have a support system, and you're lucky enough to have your father and you have God to right there at your side. Mm -hmm. So that's a beautiful thing to be able to take something and turn it into something so positive and do all of these amazing things with your life. You are so inspiring. And I'm honored to be speaking with you. I really am. Like I'm honored to be here. I have no idea. I really appreciate it because not a lot of people can embrace, you know, my full story. Again, like I just like to get in there with my bio and then (laughs) you just gotta see some of these people, like their eyes are just like Oh, I'm like about to cry right now because like I'm so happy for you. That's an amazing story. I'm really proud of you. And anybody watching that's struggling out here, I mean, this is something that you need to look inwards at yourself and go, I want to change my life. I know that we have all this pandemic stuff going on. Stacy, do you have any inspirational words for people that are struggling with addiction right now that might be watching how they can maybe get help if they don't have a good support system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that I am trying to do right now is they are currently writing a film that's based off everything that happened in my life. So I'm excited for that. And I'm potentially working with a major studio for that. So everybody will get a chance to see it. And then I'll be putting out all of my journals because I did keep journals throughout the whole thing, which is something I would recommend to everybody because You're never going to realize how far you've come because even when I go back and look at my journals, I'm just like, holy moly, like your handwriting changes because you're just in so much pain. My eyelashes hurt. I didn't think that was possible, but I remember just writing all about it. And so I'm going to put all that up. But essentially following like motivational Instagram posts and stuff, because I know the biggest thing that you probably have as an issue if you're an addict or dealing with depression or anything of that matter. It could be bipolar. It could be anything is when you can't sleep at three o'clock in the morning and nobody is there to talk to. It's like, get your book. That's when I would read my Bible. I personally love to handwrite notes to people. I tell them to keep it because then if they need to read it again and again, 
I've kept every note that my grandmother and my father, everybody wrote me throughout that process. And it was kind of like the days that I needed encouragement. I went and I just re-looked at all of that stuff. And it was usually three o'clock in the morning when nobody's up and you have nobody to talk to. And it's sometimes you just have nobody to talk to, period. I would start just with your mind. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. And if going to a meeting is what you want, that's fantastic. I think there's a lot of support in there. It wasn't for me, but that doesn't mean it's not for other people. I think finding what's best for you, and that's looking at a couple of different things because you can't always trust everything. And and everybody running the programs, you know, remember there's a lot of AA people, but then they all go to the bar together at the end of the meeting too. So pick and choose what's going to help, but start somewhere. And if that's just looking at inspirational memes on Instagram and stuff, do it. I mean, if that's what's got to help, do it. There's a whole bunch. When you follow it, it tells you everything that kind of is similar to it and just kind of look and find stuff. From there, when you're ready to take that step, you can't force anybody to do it. But if you don't do it, you're never going to get to this side. You're just going to keep being a statistic like everybody else. Start doing something. (laughs) It's like, let's do it together. It's possible. I need more people on this side of things because there's not a lot. Yeah, that's really unfortunate, too, because they're people, too. Everybody's got a story behind Mm -hmm. why they've done things, why they might be addicted to alcohol, why they might be addicted to opioids, why they might be addicted to food, even, you know? Mm -hmm. So what are the warning signs of someone with an active addiction? Definitely uh, manipulation. I mean, it's like people like us are the mass manipulators. They really are. Now I just use it you know, in business, I can see when people are starting to manipulate. (laughs) So, I mean, nobody knew I had an issue at all until I came out and was like, I am a mess. But again, even just doing Bible studies and stuff, I realized that Paul mentions it. And in the Greek term Nike, it means victory. If I was Helen Nike sneakers, that means God was definitely carrying me through that. It's like the footprints in the sand kind of And all I had to do was just put the damn things on and put one foot in front of the other and victory was just going to carry me. And I just found that out too, like in the last two weeks and I'm mind blown. I would have never realized it unless I wrote it down. The other thing that I highly recommend only because it worked for me, one of the first things that I wrote to myself in my journal, it was like a prayer. I wrote it as if it was the person I want to become. And it was like, dear God, you know, I want to change people's lives. I want to make a difference in every life I touch. And I want to do this. And I want to do that. I had to start lying to myself to try to believe that I was going to become this person. Take it till you make it. Yeah. Essentially, it really is. You have to like lie to yourself because nobody else is going to tell you the truth. And everybody's either going to tell you you're a failure and you're either going to believe them or you're just going to think they're full of BS. And I think that's, (laughs) that's what everybody is. If anybody tells you you're a failure, they've never like really been through something. They haven't experienced failure. Yeah, and that's okay too, but like just sit back and watch. It's going to be a good show. Those are the people, the people who are absolutely broken. Like, I couldn't die. It's like, well, y'all are screwed when I get back up. You know what I mean? And it's like, I totally went for it. Once again, I want to thank 365 Broadcasting. We actually have him in the comments right now. He's fighting failure with Sarge. He's very inspirational too. He's a veteran as well. So. Yes, Stacy's husband was Navy. Yep, we never forget taking that flag. Boy, oh boy, that's a hard one to do. When they were doing it, it was crazy because I can look back and say I have no idea how I did it, but when I had to accept the flag at the funeral, 
I remember looking to my kids because they were six and four and this was their dad and just like smiling and being like, aren't you so proud of your dad? Because I didn't want them to be tormented and terrorized. So it was like, if I made it positive and was like, aren't you so proud of your dad? And they were like, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, it was the moment. I think how you perceive things and how you pass it off. You know, I wasn't trying to climb in the casket, which usually isn't a good job and doesn't really. <laughs> but I've seen that before and it's really kind of freaks you yeah. out a little bit. So I didn't want any of that stuff to happen. And essentially, my husband's mom died when he was a kid, too. And he knew what worked and what didn't. And he suffered with a lot of depression because a lot of stuff didn't work on how other things and people reacted and didn't really help him when he was so young and growing up. So I kind of was prepared of what not to do because of him. It's interesting because you had mentioned your dad was the one that was really there for you. And you just said his dad was not really there, right? Yeah. And that's the thing is because I didn't want any of this nonsense going on in front of my kids. And I essentially told him, like, I don't want the kids to hate you. And I know that that really made him mad, but it's like, I can't trust a six-year-old and a four-year-old with somebody who is drinking, taking Xanax and doing all this stuff. Nowadays, do you drink or anything? Do you find that you can have a drink? Oh, yeah. Drinking was never my issue, but now I just get hangover for like four or five days, so I don't do it (laughs) really at all. I have a medical marijuana card that I use because I still have pain. I mean, if I can have a gummy bear just to put me to sleep at night, I'm going to do that instead of opioids. Other than that, I don't take anything else. I'm not even on antidepressants or anything for the last 12 years. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So, yeah, I, I'm thankful for that because Zoloft gave me a seizure and I lost my license for six months. Did so. you really? Yeah. And that was like a trip, too, because, okay, I was trying to get help for depression and they put me on... Prozac, uh, Wellbutrin, Effexor, Selexa, Lexapro. And then I finally went on Zoloft and I had a seizure. My parents luckily were there again because I had my son and I was just trying to finish my classes to graduate for college and I couldn't drive. They would drive me and then they'd watch my son and then they'd stay down there until I was done. And then they drive me back and it's like, I don't know if I'd do that for anybody. I mean, you did a lot helping that man. Yeah, it is. But it's like different. I don't know. I mean, now, obviously, yes, I see that cannabis is a miracle for getting clean and sober. I am all for all of that. Because ever since I started using it, I feel better. I could sleep. Sleep is important. So when you're up at night, wrestling with like all of these different scenarios of depression, or just going through withdrawal and all that kind of stuff, you're not sleeping either. And it just doesn't help the whole situation. You need to get your sleep. And then you need to get up in the morning, every morning, not stay in bed all day. You just put one foot in front of the other. And even if you're just nice to someone and say hello, that's a good start. Yeah, (laughs) it'll definitely come back if you're nice to everybody else and you do good. Even if you're hurting and you're in pain, you're helping somebody else and that can make you feel better. Yeah, I have to know that at least I tried. So I'm, I'm okay with that. And I honor my friends and I'm sorry that they lost. And even my husband was just honored not too long ago with an amazing organization around this area for veterans. They put his name on the wall of heroes because he made it home from the war, but he didn't survive it at home, which has happened to an awful lot of people. And so they have the wall of heroes to raise money and to help other people who are dealing with PTSD and that kind of stuff. 
called Veterans Promise up here. And they're amazing. I mean, they made us feel like royalty when we came in and they honored us. And for my kids, it was a huge deal. And they had dog chains made with his name and his rank and his dates and stuff for the boys. And Aww. it was just like a really proud moment. It really yeah. was. Mm-hmm. These are happy tears, by the way. Like that made my heart. Oh, warm. Don't cry. Don't cry. Oh, but they're happy tears, though. Because <laughs> I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. And because so many people, they can't do what you're doing. You're using your platform and the amazing things you do within the film and entertainment industry. And you're taking that and you're spreading your story and you're telling people that they're not alone and you're resonating with so many people. And I think that is such an amazing thing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's what my hope was, even though I'm a nobody from Pennsylvania. I think that's what really resonates with people the most, too, is we're not celebrities or any of that kind of stuff, nor do I want to be. But I also know that if I don't say something, it's not going to do anything. I feel like we're going to have a tear fest here in a second. All right. Well, then change the subject, damn. Damn it. I already cried at watching that amazing video. Yeah, if I don't make you feel, I'm not doing my job, right? Yeah, the dancing and the music and the words, my heart. Everybody Mm -hmm. needs to go and check that out on her IMDb page. It's in the description. How long did that take you? When did you create that? We actually had a mother come. She is the one who paid for everything. She wanted to do something because her daughter died of an accidental overdose. And she is on the board of a local college. And so she came to us because she knew that my business partner, Mark Denenbaum, I mean, he's worked the first two seasons of Sons of Anarchy and House, Elementary, Scrubs, 24, like the best shows in the world. And he and I were both broken. Like he was an alcoholic on cocaine and I was an opioid on cocaine. My business partner has been clean now for over 10 years. I'll be 17, obviously. And so together we just kind of joined forces And this woman came to us knowing that we had a past and that's what appealed to her because she wanted somebody who was going to kind of get her story. It was an honor because it came out and it was like 15 years, I think, since I was clean at that point in time. So it was like to honor her daughter and all of these people that passed. You know, we had a big reveal at the college where everybody came and watched it and the press came and everybody did big story on it. And it was really special. It's an honor to be able to tell these people's stories because you think that everybody would forget about them. But the whole point of using them is just to inspire other people to not be the statistic. We want to hear your stories. We want to do things like that, stand out, make people feel, but also make people think and also make people feel like they're not alone. Doing it in the dance way, I think, is really cool because you hear a lot of people's stories, but you don't see it. You feel it. Yeah. And you feel it. And I felt it. As soon as the girl came on the stage, okay, I already know that I'm about to be in tears. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That it needs to be spread all over the place. I'm going to definitely be sharing this right after. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. And you actually went to, was it Harvard or Stanford? Yeah, Harvard too. I've done a few courses at Harvard and at Oxford. The Harvard stuff I started last year, I've done two things. I I was asked to be part of an entrepreneurship course, a new one that they were doing last year. This year, I started to pick up some law courses. I'm working with contracts all the time. I have the most amazing entertainment attorneys too. But the point is, is I'm constantly trying to learn. Did you get in any trouble when you were, well, they were all your prescriptions, but were you ever in any kind of trouble with the law? 
I never did, but I also wasn't stupid because I had so much to lose and I didn't want to lose it. So I just lost it all at once. <laughs> Instead of just little by little, I just was like, oh, here, here's everything. Oh, wait, the bottom just fell out from underneath you. Do you get depressed from time to time? Like if you don't have your medical marijuana when you're in pain or something, do you feel depressed oh. at all these days? It's not something that you actually even like crave, if you will. Like it's not like normal drugs. I just like sleeping. <laughs> at night and pick me up during the day, but they have different ones for that, like the sativas and the indicas and stuff. Yeah. You know, I have the indica couch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's again, like I'm eating a gummy bear and I'd rather eat a gummy bear of something that's all natural. Yeah. I mean, it's the stuff in the gummy bear is not natural, but you get my point. It's definitely helped a lot of people. But I just started using it last year because we have medical now in the state of PA. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it. It's not something that you're just like, oh, I'm going to quit doing one thing and then rely on something else. There was many, many years, decades in between, uh, you know, my drug use and stuff like that. So it, I don't have the cravings and all that stuff. So it's not anything that I'm concerned about. Maybe other people might be. I'm there taking care of everybody else. And I tell everyone, if I'm the most responsible person in the room, Jesus is coming back. I don't care what is the most irresponsible person in the room. So <laughs> yeah, I'd rather do that than be the one in the toilet. That's for sure. <laughs> that's the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm sitting on the couch eating ice cream. Tried to switch it to a fruit tray so that I don't gain all this weight back, but... <laughs> Thank you, Corona, for getting us all plump. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm very curious. What did you study when you were in college and you were on the opioids? That's a lot. 50 to 100 a day of Vicodin. That's a lot. Like, how did you not pass I, from that? Well, I've actually had my DNA tested with UCLA and two different programs. And both of them came back my body metabolizes things differently. So even like down to caffeine, when most people can get the same thing from one cup of coffee, I need to have like four in order to feel it. And all of the things came back for opioids, morphine, fentanyl even. It says least reduced effect, which means that I didn't get the full effect. So I ultimately would have to take more, but I worked up to that. There was like five or six years here, starting at like two, then four then six, only on the weekends to every day, more and more and more. And then obviously it ramped up an awful lot after September 11th. And then it's a snowball. You have to keep up with it because every day now you've got to sustain yourself from the day before and the day before and the day before. And it's just repetitive, terrible, like getting up every day and taking a handful of pills was how I got up in the morning. You know, it's come a long way and I'm not going back there. Are you kidding no, me? No, that sounds like a dark place to be. And a lot of people have been popping in and out. And if you're going through this, just get out. Like she said, like put on your Nike shoes. And what was it? Get up and put one foot in front of the other. Even if you just say hello to someone, if they ask you how you're doing and you don't want to answer, that's fine. But if they ask you the second day, you got to answer, you know, like you don't have to answer anything else. Then the next day you can answer another question. Just make every day a little bit better and stop when you're just a little uncomfortable if you need to, but try to push it a little bit because life's about being uncomfortable. It's about putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. The whole reason why you were in the situation that you were in to begin with is probably because it made you feel comfortable. 
I know I've snorted heroin once before and it's like a warm hug that comes up your back and around it like it was so wonderful it scared the crap out of me so much so that I totaled two cars instead of doing IV drugs like when I was trying to commit suicide I was still too afraid because it was just so good I mean it's tough and hard but you have to get out of your comfort zone you said you were working on some projects right so what are those projects currently I have my horror film that I started off in the industry with five years ago after getting out of the news industry after about 11 years. I was directing America's highest rated local newscast in the country. I left after helping to perfect the automation systems across the country with the inventor of the automation program. Uh, I basically perfected my replacement and I saw the writing on the wall. So five years ago, I left. But being on that set, I was hired to do PR and my questions. I have a natural curiosity for things. Essentially, a week on set, they were like, well, we found some things that could have been problems along the line if you hadn't brought them up to our attention because of your questions. So would you run the entire set? So that's how I became a producer. I got thrown into it and it was an opportunity. But that right now is currently on Amazon. It's on Voodoo. Hulu on demand, iTunes, Google Play, and like 32 platforms. What's it called so I could put it on the banner? 100 Acres of Hell. It stars Gene Snitsky, he's a WWE superstar, and Ernie O'Donnell from all the Kevin Smith movies like Clerks, Red State, all of those films, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I love all those guys. They're now all of my really good friends. We're also currently working on a documentary with been dubbed The Future of Blues. His name is Clarence Spadey. He's worked with everyone from B.B. King to Eric Clapton. He used to open for The Temptations, The Supremes. I mean, incredible. For 35 years of his career, he was a heroin addict. And last year, he lost his son to an overdose. So it's kind of in the similar realm as me. But now he's been clean for a year. He's been in the studio. You know, he's doing a whole new album. And we're following him as he is now coming into this whole new realm He's a Grammy-nominated musician. He lost to B.B. King. Like, I mean, that's a great thing to lose to. But it's really cool because we're changing other people's lives, too. And it's like his story is so relevant with me. And together, him and I have become really good friends over the last year. And we've been really helping each other. And so he's going to be coming out in the scene. He's got some amazing publicists and stuff like that as well. We're going to be putting his documentary out and telling his whole story. And I'm really excited about that. So That's fantastic. Yeah. And he has you as a support system, too. I mean, you yeah, seem like somebody that you would want on your team. <laughs> that's a producer. I'm just like, well, all you have to do is just stay clean. That's stay all clean. your job is. Stay clean and do music. And he has. And so if people are willing to do the tiniest little things, essentially just be you, show up, we're going to change people's lives and make a difference. He has a song, too, he wrote called The Warmest Hug. You know, I always talked about that, and he was a big heroin addict. And I'm always like, oh, I was like a hug. And he's like, that's right, you know, bonded over our badness. And now we're trying to use it for good. (laughs) Yes, definitely. Like Eric Sims here is saying, he loves that you're paying it forward. You really, really are. This is fabulous. I really appreciate your time today. I really appreciate you and everything that you're doing. I'm hoping that this resonates with a lot of people that might be struggling with addiction. And I'm going to definitely share that video because it is beautiful. Heads up, guys, you're going to cry. You know that there are people out there suffering that need your help and don't be the person that turns them away. Be like Stacey Toy. 
Thank you once again to our network, 365 Broadcasting. Thank you to Steve Joyner, s-j-network.com. Stacy's links are all in our description. Stacy, it has been wonderful talking to you. I just love your energy and your compassion. And I love that you have healed, are still healing. I mean, we never stop healing, but you're doing a fantastic job. And I think you're a wonderful person. You've been a great guest. I really do appreciate it. It means the world. I know I joke around about a lot of stuff, but it's only just because you don't laugh and cry sometimes. And so just how it is. But I've been talking about this stuff for a long time now. So please don't think I'm heartless. It's just... I'm not one of those people who works in tears and stuff. I have to stay positive and that's what keeps me going. And so I appreciate you and thank you for allowing me and thank you everybody for listening and for all your comments and for everything like that. I'm glad that I'm resonating with you. I'm glad you like medical marijuana too. <laughs> you know, like, thank you though. It truly means the world to me. Like I literally did death just to be here. So <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, I hope you have a wonderful evening. I'm going to end the broadcast, but I'm going to speak with you for a couple minutes after if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Tina Marie with the Psychedelic Podcast out, and we'll talk to you guys later. Dream.